Dotnet Rocks episode 732, recorded live Friday, January 6th, 2012. This episode is brought to you by Telerik and by Franklin's.net, training developers to work smarter, and now offering video training on Silverlight 4 with Billy Hollis and SharePoint 2010 with Sahil Malik. Order online now at Franklin's.net. And now here are Carl and Richard. Thank you very much and welcome back to .NET Rocks. This is Carl Franklin and Richard Campbell. It's another geek out show. What's up, Richard? Ah. You know, it's a new year, it's a new day, and this is a subject that uh, drives me wild. Yes, and and it's near and dear to your heart, because you started out as a kid. Well, your father was an electrical engineer. Still is. True. (laughs) (laughs) You, uh, when you were a kid, you were taking apart motherboards and breadboards and soldering things. I started cash registers, actually. My father helped design early electronic cash registers, so my first programming job was about eight years old, programming cash registers. That's crazy. And so he taught you all about electricity and electronics along the way, I yeah, imagine. I've been electrocuting myself regularly ever since. <laughs> all right. Well, before we start, we have a couple of things to do. I don't usually do better know a framework on the Geek Out shows, but I figured I'd go looking on CodePlex for some related project, and I found this one. Oh. It's pwrusage.codeplex.com, powerusage.codeplex, and it's a power usage meter using Arduino. Ah, nice, the little .NET kit. Which is, you know, yeah, that's right, that's the little .NET kit. It's the, it, the description says, record your power usage over time using simple and cheap hardware to capture the flashing LED on the electricity meter. So it uses a light sensor. Oh, interesting. Yeah. That's interesting. Yeah, huh? that's that's cool. But in and there's lots of different power metering systems. But it's nice to get one that you can actually code against. Yeah, it's neat. And I don't know how good it works. I just went looking for it and I saw that. There you so, go. So it's fun. All right, who's talking to us, Richard? Grabbed a comment off of show seven oh six, which was the electric car geek out show. Oh yeah. And this comments from Wayne. He says, uh, "Interesting show today, as always, Carl and Richard." However, I must digress. From the unabashed electric car fanboyism. I have an electrical engineering degree. I have had power, thermal, materials, etc., as well as hardware and software engineering courses. There is no free lunch when it comes to power. It has to come from somewhere. Somewhere. The power from those charging stations comes from electric power plants, where it is usually generated by steam turbines powered by coal or nuclear. There may, right. in fact, be more heat generated by coal and nuclear than by internal combustion. Let's not even talk about the adverse effects of burning coal, even the cleanest process. In an age of acid rain, antiquated overloaded electric power grids, rolling blackouts and brownouts in summer heat and winter cold, do we really want to add millions of electric cars charging stations onto the load? Finally, what about all those batteries? There are a few things more toxic than batteries. What are we going to do with all of them when they're worn out? Create toxic waste dumps full of expended car batteries for future generations to clean up? On the other hand, compared to electric, petroleum is relatively clean burning, produces manageable amounts of waste, and internal combustion-based cars are easy to recycle. Internal combustion is not perfect, but at this time, it is more environmentally sound than coal, nuclear, and billions of worn-out batteries. I think we should be looking at hydrogen-powered vehicles, not electric. Two things we have plenty of are hydrogen and oxygen. Well, we have we have plenty of... I'll start here. There's plenty of hydrogen. It's very abundant. It's just getting it is difficult. Yeah. And also requires electricity. Yes. Yeah. It takes energy to separate hydrogen out. And, of course, the question is, what are you going to do with the hydrogen once you have separated out? You could burn it Yeah. Right, in, in, in a combustion engine. That doesn't work particularly well. The usual thing you do is you put it into a fuel cell, right? which makes electricity. Yeah. So I think its actual dislike is of the batteries, although flatly car battery systems are so expensive that you don't throw them away. You recycle them. You take them apart and rebuild them. Yeah. Those little alkali batteries, they're much tougher to recycle, but we're even starting to do that as well. But I think uh, it's fair to say that batteries are potentially toxic waste. The real issue is you got to manage that properly, the same way you do with everything else. Car, you know, combustion engines didn't start out being clean burning. They, they've improved over time. Right. And how you generate power is another question entirely. And certainly that's the topic of this show. But thanks yes. very much for your comment, Wayne. And uh, while we may not completely agree with you, certainly there are good points to talk to there. And we'd like to send you a mug. And if you'd like a mug, write a comment on the website at .netrocks.com. Yes, he does make some good points. Wayne, thanks for writing in. 
Uh, we're going to get to the electricity talk in a minute, but first I need to tell you about Pluralsight. Pluralsight provides comprehensive developer training online. They have nearly 200 hardcore developer training courses authored by MVPs and industry experts such as those you hear on this show. They release 8 to 10 new courses every month and offer a free 10-day trial. That's 200 minutes of access to their entire library. Pluralsight offers a wide range of developer training courses, including coverage of iOS, Java, Android, web development, and pretty much anything you can think of on the Microsoft stack. Try Pluralsight today. Subscription plans start at just $29 a month. Uh, so getting to the show, we're going to do a nuclear show in the future. But before we can do that, we really have to discuss the fundamentals of electricity, which is what I'm here to learn because I'm a musician. <laughs> Last time I looked, you're a pretty good programmer too, but. Well, uh, what I'm saying is that a lot of the extent of my brushing up against the terms of electricity have to do with matching DC adapters or AC adapters, you know, to uh, devices. Sure. In, in the back room of the studio, talk about a drawer of broken dreams. You know? <laughs> I have I've, that drawer. All I've those got, little adapters with yeah. all the different plugs, different polarities. So I have that drawer. I have boxes of adapters that I have <laughs> no idea for? what the hell they are for. <laughs> so one of the things that I'm doing this spring is sitting down with all my stranded devices and all my stranded power adapters. Right. In checking out the amps and the volts and the watts and all that stuff all and try to figure out. it out. So let's start there. Well, I, I, can we start? Let's start one level lower because I really want people need to understand what electricity is. Okay. And it, and it, you I've got to go all the way. I hate to do this, but let's you do go it. all the way to the Niels Bohr's atomic model. Let's do it. And that was a big deal. And we've all, we all learned this in school, right? You have a nucleus of an atom that has protons and neutrons in it. And around right. that nucleus are these electrons, right? And electrons, electricity, they're related. Now, the important thing to know about the electrons is that they go in these orbits called shells. And what Bohr really proved in his theory was that these, there are clear levels of energy for electrons. They're, they come in particular quanta. And so when you port energy into an atom, you increase the energy level of the electron and it will actually pop up a shell. Uh, so they're layered is what you're right. saying. It is actually layers. That's why I call them shells. And depending on the size of the nucleus, you have different numbers of electrons in different shells. Now, if you put, and they, and they call them quant, he actually talked to them as photons. That is the mean of transmitting energy, but people tend to equate photons with light, which light is not particles. accurate, but it's, I, let's stick with quanta because it makes me more comfortable. Okay. So we put in a quanta of energy into an atom. An electron will hop up a shell. All right. When that energy is discharged, the electron drops back down a shell and that quantum moves on to another atom. And that is essentially the flow of electricity. Now, I, well, I tend to think of it as, um, in turn, if you understand what waves are, a wave in a pool, mm -hmm. it looks like the water is traveling right. from one end of the pool to the other. But in really what's happening is it's bumping up against the water molecules uh, and moving and pushing them and then bouncing back. Right. So they don't so actually go it's more like a slinky. It's, if you take a spring like a slinky and, you know, give it a shake and you see the wave travel, well, the, the metal or the plastic isn't actually moving, but it looks like it's moving. Right. The energy is moving through it. Well, and you make a very valid point that we talk about the flow of electricity all the time in hint of this idea that it's actually flowing electrons. Right. And that's not true because electricity moves pretty close to the speed of light. Yeah. And, you know, electrons don't move that fast. Interesting. But, but photons do. The quanta do. So the thing to realize here is that you put energy into an atom. If the electron bumps up a shell, when it bumps back down, the, the energy moves on. If you put too much energy into an atom, you'll actually blow the electron off. And that's bad. That tends to actually melt things. Oh, I see. Right? When you actually put too much energy in, and that melting effect is really these electrons start coming off and you get ionized atoms. Now, different elements transmit energy more efficiently or less efficiently based on how their electrons are arranged. So one of the reasons that copper is such a great conductor of electricity is that it only has one electron in its outermost shell. So it's very easy for it to move up and very easy for it to move down. And you see. Got, you'll see all of the great conductors have that particular formulation. Interesting. And the things that 
aren't conductors that uh, you tend to think of as the shields are stuff like plastic. Right, but they're, I mean, they're still made up of atoms. Why are those atoms not conducting electricity? And the reason is that they have complete electron shells, and those electron shells resist uh, quanta for the most part. That's interesting. You have to pour a lot of energy into making them. Everything can be in a conductor if you put enough energy into it. So electricity is really not electrons moving through copper, yeah, but right. it's electrons moving between the different shells of the atom right. and the quanta, which you can consider the energy. Yep. I guess m- jumping from electron to electron. Mm-hmm. Okay, uh, you you've got it, and 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 so it's more like vibrating. Yeah, and it's you know that may, which makes you more comfortable with the idea that why does it heat up? Why does it glow? Yeah, why does it melt? It's vibrating, and if you right. vibrate it too hard, it comes apart. Yeah, I got it. Beautiful. Okay, so let's talk about the terms we use around. Uh, electricity stuff like volts and amps and, and so forth. Right? Watts, volts, and amps. These are the three things that everybody talks about, and and I really don't have a clear mental model. Every, you know, every time I hear somebody try to explain it to me, uh, it just becomes uh, more unclear. And they tend to use the water model. And so now that I've cl- you know sort of outlined at the atomic level, it's not flowing anywhere per se. We're going to use the water model because it does make sense. So the okay. two big ones here are volts and amps. Okay. And volts really talks about the potential, right? How much energy we have available. And that, you know, you can almost take that the width of the pipe. Presuming the pipe is always filled with water, right? That is okay. absolutely filled with water. Volts speaks to how wide is the pipe. All right. And amp speaks to how quickly the water is flowing through the pipe. That's I why see. you relate amp. And the other term for amperage is current because it is the rate of flow. All right. So then what is a watt? A watt is the uh, combination of it's volts times amps. Okay. Right? So they go together. So that's why when you talk about a 60-watt light bulb, or say, let's use an easy number, like a 100-watt light bulb. Okay. A 100-watt light bulb, given 100 volts, will consume one amp. Got to it. To run it at, at its optimal range. Now, you can increase the voltage, right? If I double the voltage to 200 volts, still running at one amp, I'm now pushing a 100-watt bulb at 200 watts, which means it'll probably burn out. Now, okay, hold on. Here's We got to back up a little bit. Okay. All right. The volts, if I increase the voltage, I widen the pipe. Yes. And if I don't increase the amps, isn't there half as much water flowing through the pipe? Well, this is where the water analogy breaks down because you must always presume that the pipe is full of water for it to actually make sense because there is no concept of a half-full wire. Ah. All right. Okay. If you look at a rated wire, right, like a wire in your wall mm. is a, is rated at 20 amps at 120 volts, right? That's that wire's rating. Mm-hmm. And it's basically saying at that level of flow, it won't melt. It shouldn't even get hot. And if you you can increase the flow, right, it's not like that wire won't allow more flow to go through it. It's just at above that level, it will start to break down. So is there a better analogy than water pipes? Um, I don't, you know, we could go around in circles for a long time with that, but it's, you know, the real distinction here is the potential of the force, right? They talk about, volts is really about electrical potential mm. and amps is really about electrical current. So rate of flow versus the sort of width or strength of the flow. So doesn't the size of the pipe determine how many, how fast water can flow through it? Not really. You can flow off water very, very, and that's the interesting game you can play here, right? I can end, the nice thing about watts is that 100 watts could be one volt at 100 amps, or it could be 100 volts at one amp. No, whoa, 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 whoa. Yeah, so this is where the analogy breaks down, and this is why I'm having a hard time with it. Mm-hmm. So uh, a, a watt is that combination, yes. and the, the, the factors can be any, any range. range you want to go at. As right? long as they, yeah, add up. And I mean, the interesting thing is when you look at, so typically when you talk about household wiring, it's typically, we presume, at least in North America, it's always going to be what they call 120 volts RMS. Okay. And that we have to get into AC to talk about what that actually means. And so we have amperage ratings for wire. And so normal in the wall to your outlet kind of wiring is typically 20 amp wire. But the wire that comes in off your pole is uh, typically 100 amp wire. And you usually have two of them. Now, yeah. Now, I, I, I kind of get the, if we're sticking with the water analogy, I kind of get how that gets split up. Mm-hmm. How well, because obviously you can't 
touch a hundred amps to any one outlet. Um, that would be crazy. Well, and they do make, you know, my little, uh, server closet has 30 amp, uh, outlets in it because I have the big UPSs, right? And it's a different kind of locking plug and so forth. And, right. and when we talk about it, we, we're going to have to talk about AC as well to talk about why there's multiple wires involved and, and all those sorts of things. But you get into a dryer plug, which is 240 volts. It's, it, that's a different system as, as well. So there are, it, it is capable of doing that. It was just, we've sort of settled on 120 volts. And most of this has to do with the legacy of how all this stuff came along. Well, I kind of think of, you know, how that, how those amps get split up is sort of like a shower head. Yeah. Yeah. If you think, it's fair. Yeah. So if you think you've got a hundred, let's call it a hundred PSI, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, of pressure coming into that shower head, uh, you could, you know, all at once. It would come out very fast and very powerfully, or you could split it into a lot of different uh, holes, I guess you would call right. it. Right. Yeah. But, they, and they, they, I mean, you know, you also have breakers in your house as well, and the reason is that you can plug enough things into one circuit, you can demand enough water out of one pipe that the pipe's actually going to burst. It's going to melt. And so we put in a safety system in the house with breakers to just say, if it, asks, it gets past a certain number of watts... Or a certain number of amps, it pops that breaker, and that's basically when it gets to a point where it's too hot. Yeah, the breaker pops to stop the electrical flow so that it won't melt. So every once in a while, though, you'll burn out a breaker. Now, sure. how does that? Because you smell it, you know, and you see it's melted behind the breaker. How does well, that happen? And, and exactly, you've got high enough. In the end, there is this concept of electron erosion, right? That that vibration does do damage, and if we tend to run our breakers at their limits all the time. Hmm. They will eventually break down. Okay. Right. Metal does corrode. It does erode and it does need to be replaced. All right. Okay. So, um, let's talk about these little, cause you know, we have these AC adapters for everything now. Sure. And you know, there are some times when I lose an adapter, right? Mm-hmm. And so I have to go looking through my box to find one that matches. And I can never remember if the, if, you know, I, I can never remember whether it's okay to have too many amps or too few amps on the rating, you know, compared to the device. But you know, you need to match the voltage and you need to match the polarity. I knew I need to match the voltage and the polarity, which yeah. is the plus and minus. They, they need, those need to match. If you vary, depending on some electronics will tolerate a little bit of variance on voltage. Yeah. You know, if something needs nine volts and you give it 10, it's probably okay. Yeah. But that depends on the device. But what you want is to be, to uh, have more amps coming out of the transformer than the device actually needs. You don't want less. Well, you can have exactly the right amount. A perfect too. match is fine, right? But if it if it needs 500 milliamps, which is basically half an amp, yeah, uh, and the the uh, transformer is rated at one amp, you're fine, right? It's gonna. The main problem ha- that happens here is if you have a 250 milliamp transformer for a device that needs 500 amps, it's gonna try and draw more power than that transformer can generate, and the transformer will get hot. And typically, uh, in you know, modern electronics, there are all kinds of safety devices built in. The transformer, before it will actually catch fire, has a little breaker inside of it that's a permanent breaker. When, once it's broken, the thing is wrecked. And it'll uh, just pop apart, and power stops flowing, and you've wrecked the transformer. All right. So that, that settles it then. It's okay, it's okay to provide more amps than required, but not less. Right. And same, you know, when, when you talk about amps versus volts, and you look at stuff like household dimmers. Yeah. Right. Dimmers are funny. Depends on the type of dimmer. There's different kinds of dimmers. So the old style dimmer, which they call a rheostat, actually restricts the voltage going to the light. It's a resistor. So it's a resistor, which, I mean, the the joke here is it gets hot because it's turning the electricity into heat rather than allowing it to flow through the wire to make the light bright. Now, isn't it using less electricity when you turn it down? No, not really. Yeah. See, this is the thing that's weird. Uh, and I know we've talked about this before, but when you turn, you, you get the idea that less light equals less electricity use. So turn your lights down. But that's not really accurate, is it? Well, it depends on the type of dimmer you've got. These days, most dimmers are what they call triac dimmers, and they actually alter the AC waveform. So they are energy efficient and they don't get hot. But it's those old, if your dimmer gets hot, that's electricity being wasted. Yeah. Right. The heat comes from somewhere. Nothing's for free. This portion of .NET Rocks is brought to you by Telerik Just Decompile. 
Recent developments in the .NET world have opened up a niche for a free .NET decompiling tool. If you, like so many other developers, have been looking for an alternative .NET decompiler, you'll most certainly welcome the launch of Just Decompile, a powerful tool which promises to stay free forever. Currently in beta, Just Decompile offers effortless .NET decompiling and assembly browsing, innovative code analysis and navigation, side-by-side assembly loading, auto-updating, and better decompiling accuracy. A product by leading .NET vendor Telerik, Just Decompile has an aggressive release schedule and a roadmap based on community feedback. You can visit the Just Decompile feature suggestion forum to let Telerik know what features you'd like to see added to Just Decompile or vote for one suggested by your peers. The official version launch is expected this summer, 2011. Go to telerik.com slash .NET decompiling. And remember to thank them for supporting .NET Rocks. So the the word resistor is an interesting word. Um, when I went to uh, audio engineering school, they taught us that on a on a mixing board or on a piece of gear where there's a potentiometer, you know, a knob that you yep. turn up or down, or a fader, um, that it could be one of two things: it could be a resistor, mm-hmm. or it could be an amplifier. Right. And a, a resistor is something that takes the the signal that's coming into it and resists it so you could turn it essentially down to zero, but the signal is still being applied to it, right? So an amplifier on the other hand takes a signal that is weaker and uh amplifies it, turns right. it up, boosts it up. Right. And generally an amplifier is going to produce cleaner sound than a resistor. Because when you when you resist audio signal, you have the potential to introduce um, noise from the system itself. Yeah, that's fair. I would agree with that. And again, when you get into the hydraulic scenario, a resistor is literally a narrowing of the pipe. Yeah. Right. And an amplifier is in, an interesting idea because with an amplifier, you're really it's a three way connection. You have a bigger pipe, the, the louder sound, and you have the source comes in in the middle and basically controls the flow of the bigger pipe to have it match. The flow of the littler pipe. So a resistor in electricity is what? Essentially a way of, it is a less conductive material that convert, that restricts the flow of electrons, right? It slows down, and I, even, even I'm saying it, it slows down the rate that the quanta can pass through the wire. I get it. So it decreases the conductivity. Right. And, and it's important to realize even everything has a, some level of resistance, right? That becomes important when we start transmitting electricity over long distances that Every wire has a level of resistance. It's just more resistance or less resistance. And when you have a potentiometer, like a, like a dimmer, mm-hmm. what you're doing is you're variably increasing the resistance. Right. By, by doing what? By making the amount of material it has to go through more? That's right. If you look at, if you took apart an old style rheostat, you would see that there's, uh, uh, literally a strip of, of resistant material. And the one end of the wire is connected to one end of the strip. And then the knob part has a, uh, a copper plate Got with it. a pointer touching that resistant material. And as you turn it, you make that strip effectively longer. All right. So what's next? Let's uh, talk about the difference between alternating current and direct current. Because direct current came first, right? We actually, thousands of years ago, figured out how to make basic batteries, although they never did much with them. Uh, uh, DC was the original sort of power system starting with a, but you I mean, ba- the problem is the batteries aren't a lot of power. Yeah. You needed to generate more power than that. So now you get into the, the time of Edison, Westinghouse and Tesla and, and this whole concept. So direct current, essentially the idea is you have a steady flow at a particular voltage at a particular amperage. And, and Edison's are, you know, there's this great story called, they actually call the War of the Currents or the Battle of the Currents in right. the 1880s. Yeah. Edison, Edison was behind DC and That's Tesla right. was behind AC. Yes. Nikolai Tesla. And, and really it was George Westinghouse who was the, the guy who backed, you know, Tesla was this crazy Serbian guy who was an ultra genius. I mean, so much technology has come out of this man's mind, but I don't know that he was a great business guy, but he was a great inventor. He was the Mark Miller of electricity. <laughs> but it was Westinghouse that actually was front man. And of course, Westinghouse is still a very famous name, but it, and he yeah. was the guy that was really working on that. And there's, there's a, you can understand why DC worked. DC is very simple to build for and it's useful for smaller devices because of batteries. Right. Um, but it, it, it's, it's very challenging to work with when the voltages get high because it, it, 
uh, it, it gets hot. Well, and it's also therefore dangerous, is it not? It, it can definitely be dangerous. And, and Edison was actually not so driven on creating electrical distribution as much as he was. He wanted, he was working on the light bulb from very early days. And his early incandescent bulbs were built using direct current. Now, does direct current require a circuit? Yes. Okay. And, and, and when you're hitting on a very interesting point, because one of the things you can do with AC is you can use neutral ground. Yeah. Which shaves on wire. And, and direct current really needs bipolar wiring. You have to have a wire going out and a wire going back. Right. Uh, the big, the, but there's a larger issue here and it's how you generate power, which is really why AC won out more than anything else. Okay. Uh, because AC motors make more sense. So the, this all, the thing you've got to think about in the 1880s when they were working on this is that steam power was the power of the day. Right. Right. And people did not have electrical lights in the house. They did not have outlets in their house. They did not have appliances. None of these things existed. Right. The most important thing for power was factories. Right. Right. That's why you had power. James Watt's steam engine was doing its thing. And one of the biggest challenges here is you had to ship a lot of coal into these factories to run these steam power plants that were a, the, the actual steam source. And so the concept of generating electricity was to simplify the factory. I want the motor, but I don't want to ship the coal there. I want to put a power plant near the coal mine to make the power there, turn coal into electricity, mm. transmit it by wire. Mm-hmm. Into, uh, into the factory and run the motors. The other place that motors became very important in that point, in that era was the streetcar. And the motors for factories were to do what? To turn the machines that milled out the stuff, whatever. Whatever it, it may be, you know, it was a Jacquard loom weaving cloth. Now, was it right? also to produce electricity for light bulbs or we weren't there yet? We weren't there yet. We, the light bulbs came shortly. Light bulb was really the first thing that put electricity in the houses, but it's important to recognize because it's impacting us today. So we had factories before we had light bulbs. Absolutely. Okay. Right. But, and we had different lighting. I mean, you, even if you worked by candlelight. Right. We still had ways to do to do lighting before we actually had because we were just running it from steam. Okay. So yeah. The light bulb was not the first thing. The motor was the first thing. All right. And it, I saw this great etching in doing my research of power poles in New York in the late eighteen hundreds because they had all sometimes you had AC wire, sometimes you had DC wires, they ran at different cycle rates. So there's all these different kinds of wires, all for different purposes. There was no unified system at all. Wow. Because here's the big challenge. When you actually want to make electricity in large quantities, spinning turbines works better. But you have, now you get into this electromagnetism effect, the thing they call the, the field effect. Right. And this is what windmills produce. Well, well, they, that's how they work, in other words. Any generator works this way whenever you're turning things, right? Okay. The electric motor and electric generator are basically the same system. They have a stator, which is a fixed set of coils, typically in a ring around a rotor, which has a uh, set of coils that are rotating. Okay. Now, this is, <laughs> this is another thing I don't understand. When I look at, a, when I look at windmills, because I, I did a fair bit of research into windmills and how they work, but I still right. don't get it. And you're not talking about the old Dutch windmills. You're talking about modern... Modern windmills. Oh, yeah. Electricity modern windmills. windmills. If you look in the, the ring, in the very core, right. in the center of it, and you crack it open, you would see... These wrapped, uh, coils around right. these pieces of metal or whatever and arranged in, in, in a circle. Yeah. So there might be, I don't know, 10 of them. There could be four. There could be eight. There could be 16, as many as will fit around. Yep. The, the center. And those, uh, I, that, is that the rotor or the stator? The stator is the part that doesn't move. The rotor is the part that does move. Okay, so you understand that the whole principle here of the of, of, of electrical generation is turning a, a electrical field inside of another field. Okay, so as you pass a another coil around those coils in yeah. a circle, that generates electricity, a magnetic field, and are those those coils aren't particularly connected to anything that is providing them power it's just the simple fact that they are coils and that they're moving yeah the motion is is what creates the effect that's really weird it is something isn't it right and they are electromagnetic so you are putting a charge through them okay, but they okay. create a larger charge in the process okay you're putting a charge through them with what you power you actually power an electric motor when you start it up 
Right. When you start it, a windmill? It is self-reinforcing. The first turn will generate it. So at the simplest level, if I take a, you can do this yourself. Take a piece, a, a magnet, a fixed magnet. Take a piece of copper wire. Wrap it around the magnet. So you have the two leads sticking, uh, two ends sticking out. Connect that to a voltmeter. And then slide the magnet up and down in through the coil. Okay? Please, no sexual references. Oh, I see. But if you do that, you will see an electrical potential come out of that coil. Huh. Now, you're using a fixed magnet. So you're using the magnetic strength of that fixed magnet to create that field. When you have coils both on the stator and on the rotor, you power the stator coils to create an electromagnet, which is much more powerful than a fixed magnet. Okay. All right. I, th- I think I get it. So when you have a windmill, you actually have to provide power to the windmill to get it going? Is that what you're If you're, you're not saying? using fixed magnets, yes. It depends on the kind of motor you're using. Okay. They can be fixed magnets or they can be electromagnets. I get it. Okay. But just recognize as soon as you start the thing, you know, it's definitely, it's bootstrap with a battery. The moment it starts turning, it will power up. Got it. All right. So AC, we were talking about the differences between DC and AC. Right. Alternating current is what this, you know, uh, generator creates. creates. Well, you, what you do is you imagine one revolution of that windmill, right? Creating a circle. Now, if you lay that, stretch that circle out, you create a sine wave, right? Yeah. So you, and you know, if we're talking about the, the US system, you go from a negative, actually a negative 170 d- volts up to positive 170 volts going through zero in a full and then back to zero again in a full cycle. So zero to a negative 170 to zero to positive 170 to zero. All that right. is one full rotation. Okay. All right. Mm-hmm. And the, uh, and the weight, the rate that you rotate that motor at pretty much sets the cycle. So we run our power systems in North America at 60 hertz. Right. And that's 60 revolutions per second. Cycles per second. Right. Hertz. Now, actually, we typically do higher rotations than that. And then we chain, we use transformers to step up and step down voltages and cycle rates. Okay. So, you know, actually the, the standard for stuff like hydroelectric turbines is 3600 RPM, which divides down very nicely to 60 hertz. Oh, nice. And that's the only reason, you know, in, in, in Europe, they use 50 hertz. Their motors are running at 3000 RPM. <laughs> but it's, these are just arbitrary decisions because the big advantage of AC power was that it ran motors extremely well. A DC motor, an electric motor, is much more complicated beast than an AC motor and a lot less efficient. Hmm. This is why Tesla really won out. Because believe me, Edison, not a nice man. He did everything no. he could to make his DC system win. It had nothing to do with the technical merits. This was the guy who invented the electric chair. Yeah. Using AC power to demonstrate how dangerous AC was. Yeah. Right? I mean, he was the man. And to this day, there are still... You know, myths around electricity that were created by Edison to try and drive AC out. That, that 60 hertz was a harmonic frequency for humans, so it was more lethal to them. That's all stuff generated by Edison's PR machine to try and discredit AC. Wow. But in the end, the big advantage of AC was because it's naturally created by a rotating electromagnet, it runs motors more efficiently. And, and you could say that a, is, a, is a motor kind of like a generator in reverse? They are exi- is exactly that. You apply a field from the stator and, and then rotate the rotor. You generate electricity. You apply power to the rotor. You it will naturally spin, and, and now you're getting power back out. And so, if you think about yeah. it, the er- those early days in the eighteen late eighteen hundreds, they were just trying to take the energy of coal and put it in the factory without having to ship the coal there. It's brilliant. I mean, if you think about. Who came up with the idea of this, of the generator and motor mm-hmm. and how that was going to work? And it gets even better because we're just talking about what a single phase system. So we understand the single sine wave, right? Right. And that basically relates to a set of coils in the rotor related to a set of coils around the stator. But if I put multiple sets of coils in the rotor, I can generate multiple sine waves per rotation. And so the, we talk about three phase power. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Multiple sine waves per rotation. That's right. Now I know about, I know about phase from audio when if I'm looking at an amplitude wave, which is, you know, if you record anything and look at the, the visual representation of that amplitude wave, you'll see that it, the, the, the middle of the line is zero and the wave will 
arc below the line, which is a negative. Yep. And then come to zero. And then where it crosses zero is called a zero crossing. That's silence. Yep. And then it will arc up and that's plus. Right. And so one, the plus is a phase and minus is a phase. Oh, no, no, no. The, the complete cycle down through up and back to zero is a phase. Is that right? right? And, yeah. and, but take a sine wave, right? Which you know has got that one, that full cycle. Right. And create another sine wave, but start it slightly later. Right. So that they're out of phase. Right. So when we talk about three phase power, what we've got is three sets of coils on the rotor that allow us to create three sine waves 120 degrees out of phase from each other. In, in audio, we call that digital delay. Right. <laughs> but you see, the you, once you understand that the, the work is the, the voltage applied, right? Yeah. That in that cycle, you go from zero work to a negative 170 volts of work up to back to zero and then up to 170 volts of work positive. That's stress on the motor when you do that. I see. Right. So if you actually take three phases together, you put less stress on the motor and generate more power for its size. So three-phase motors are incredibly powerful for their size in terms of the amount of horsepower you can put into a given weight of motor. A three-phase motor is much more powerful. And do they actually pro- uh, do they actually create three times the power? It's not not exactly. No, uh, you, we talk about RMS. So I've been talking about a, uh, North American AC is 170 volts, and that's actually what the peak voltage is at the, the very highest point and very lowest point to the sign are 170 volts. Okay. But the mean, that sort of net voltage is 120, which is the term we normally use, or 117 if you want to be exact, uh, the RMS voltage, which is sort of the average of that span. What does RMS stand for? RMS stands for root mean square, which is sort of the concept encapsulating average when you're dealing with frequencies. Okay. So why do we think of 110 volts? Why, you know, why are the uh, outlets 110 volts? Well, they, they, this is all approximations of what is the actual voltage based on the RMS. 110, 120, 117, they're all about the same thing. I get the peak, the peak and the trough are at 170 and they roughly average out around there. Uh, and when you're dealing with household power, the, the real problem is that realize that they picked 120 volts almost arbitrarily. And the drive to standardized, you know, actually meant that we stuck with this. And it's it's too low, to be honest, for a lot of work. It's, hmm. The European system's at 220, and there's some distinct advantages for being at higher voltage. Okay. Uh, and so... That's one of the reasons that we have bipole power in our houses so that we can run stuff like dryers. Right. Because 120 volts just can't run a dryer, but you have 240 volts for your dryer and you have to, you, so now you would ask me. Right. How is this possible? Right. Well, now that I've talked about multi-phase like three-phase, and we don't generally have three phases in our home. We have, those are generally only for factories. Okay. We do have two phases. You typically have two wires coming off the pole into your house and they are in opposite phases of each other. So if you looked at the signs, they would be exactly opposing. When one's at 170, the other one's at negative 170. Wow. So they they have to be perfectly synchronized, don't they? Oh, yeah. Synchronization in AC cycles is a huge deal. But if you go look at your dryer plug, you'll notice that there are four wires going into that plug. Hmm. And that's because there's one for ground, uh, there's one which is literally the land ground, there's the neutral wire, and then the two poles. The neutral wire is the negative for both of the poles? It's the, yes. Okay. And, and those, the motor in the, consequently that additional voltage and additional available amperage, it means we can run a lot more power through a dryer to dry clothes. So we've come up with a solution using this lower voltage to be able to, uh, to run, uh, higher powered things. And if, when you look at your, uh, breaker box, and you have two rows of breakers typically. They're on op- every, they're on opposite poles. Everything on the left side's on one pole and everything on the right side's on the, on the other pole. And it's why your dryer plug is so big is it straddles between the poles. Huh. Isn't that interesting? Yeah. Well, that's cool. So Carl. Yeah, Richard. You ever embed Excel into an application? Ugh. You know, that's right up there with sticking ice picks in my ears. Nice. Cause your end users have to have the right version of Office and all that stuff. Yeah. And it has that extra layer of dependency. What I want is just a way to take all that Excel goodness and plop it right into my .NET application. 
Well, you reminded me of Farpoint Spread from the old days. Yeah, 20 years ago, I used Farpoint Spread. But now, of course, it's Grape City Power Tools Spread. And now, you know, they have this version that's both for ASP.NET and for Windows Forms in one package. Nice. Yeah, it's two different controls, obviously, but it's in one package. So You bought one, you bought the other. Right. Spread.NET from Grape City Power Tools. Smarter components for smarter developers. Well, um, before we go on... I need to give away some goodies here. Woohoo, loot! Yeah. I'm talking about the Telerik Ultimate Collection that we are giving away on every .NET Rocks show. Just for being a fan of .NET Rocks, if you want to join the fan club, go to .NET Rocks.com slash fan page dot ASPX, or just go to the main site and look for the big win free stuff button and click on that. Uh, you answer a few questions and then every, every show we have a lucky winner, and today's winner is Andre Markovich from Toronto, Ontario. Woohoo, Andre! And what's he win? He wins a Telerik Ultimate Collection. This is a, a two thousand dollar value. It's actually that's how much it costs if you were going to buy it, but it's actually an eight thousand dollar value because it's eight thousand nice. dollars worth of Telerik software. It's everything that they do. It's sort of the MSDN of Telerik software. Awesome. If you want to think about it that way. And uh, also, for being a fan on the fan club, you could win $5,000 worth of technology. This December, we're going to have a drawing, and we don't know exactly what we're going to give away, but we know it's going to be awesome. Well, because we know that hardware advances so fast, so I don't want to spec something out now that I'm going to give away later. But even if we did spec something out now, it would be amazing. Yeah. Yeah. It would be cool, but it'll be cooler in December. Definitely. Awesome. All right. Now let's get back to the show where we're talking about generating power. So we talked about the whole concept of a generator. And these days, virtually all power is made using some kind of turbine. Uh, and, and for better or worse, it's the steam turbine. So, you know, whether right. you're using coal, using oil, using natural gas, or using nuclear materials, you're boiling water under pressure to turn a turbine. Right. That's and that's just works, the most right? efficient way to do it. Well, it's, it's what we understand, right? In the end, the, mm. these are the most mature technologies. You know, when we do other shows around next generation electricity, we could talk about some of the other ways they actually generate electricity. But for the moment, this is what we do is we boil water to pump steam to turn turbines at particular rates. Okay. Uh, and this, you know, very much this system is based on what came out of the late 1800s, mm-hmm. where it was, especially in the U.S., it was mostly coal, right? The right. United States is the Saudi Arabia of coal. It, it really has is. Lots and lots and lots of it, and it uses it. And there's all kinds of problems with that, but that's what you've got, and you use it. Yep. And so you tend to put the power plants close to where the material you can generate energy with comes from, and then distribute the power from there. So a lot of energy comes out of Pennsylvania. A lot of it does. Yeah. yeah. Virginia and uh, that whole area. A tremendous amount. Of, you've also got the, Ni- then you get into thir- hydroelectric like the, the Niagara. Yeah. Uh, facility, which is taking advantage of falling water. And here in British Columbia, we're blessed with mountains. So we've got most of our power comes from uh, hydroelectric dams. When I went to, uh, uh, Las Vegas last time, we went out to the Hoover Dam. Mm-hmm. And that was amazing. That's yeah, a big piece of concrete. Yeah. And, you know, Kelly, my wife was saying to me that, it must have been fascinating to be, you know, to hear the reaction of people when they said, let's, let's move the river. Yeah. You know, we're going to have to redirect the river so we can build this. Let's, thing. let's move the river and build a big dent. What? Can you yeah. imagine? And when the we're looks? done, we're going to move it back. Yeah. Can you imagine the looks that guy must have got? And they it's- did it all without calculators, without computers. Yeah. Just slide rules and pencils. Well, back then a computer was a guy with a slide rule. Yeah. It's pretty amazing. He did the computation. But one of the things we know is that you, because there's resistance in wires, the further you transmit electricity, the more you lose. Right. But we've also discovered that if you step the voltage up dramatically to very high voltages, you lose less. And so those rules may help support the idea that we need a few very large power plants. Mm. And these power plants generate these ma- many, many megawatts of power. We step them up. And when we talk about high voltage, you know, those high voltage tension lines on those great big aluminum frames where they clear the ground for a mile around it the whole way, yeah. those are typically 500,000 volt wires, 500 kilovolt wires. And I also learned, uh, and I learned this during the last hurricane here in Connecticut where Connecticut Light and Power took up to two weeks to restore power to some homes. And so... 
they had a program on uh, Connecticut Public Radio uh, with these guys who were explaining themselves, you know, why it's taking so long and what all that. Right. But I learned that the the high voltage wires are on the very top of the poles and right. they're unshielded. Well, it, it, yeah, because it, it does. You don't need to shield them, and shielding's expensive, and it doesn't work anyway. At those kinds of well, I'm, now we better clarify here: the poles that are running down your street. They're not 500,000 volts up there. No. We're talking about the great big from the power plant. You know, there's a stepping system here. We go from the power plant, extremely high voltage to a substation. Right. And again, big, you ever notice how cleared off those things are? Oh, yeah. Fenced in, only gravel, nothing combustible. Right. They step down the voltages with big transformers. Right. And, uh, and, and breakers to lower voltages, but they still keep the voltage up because again, transmission, the lower the voltage is, the more you're going to lose to, to resistance. Right. So you want to keep the voltage high. And then you have the cans, the little transformers right on the pole that take the, I think it's about 14,400 volts steps down to 120. Now, every once in a while, a transformer explodes and makes a huge mess, and then oil smoke goes everywhere. Oh, yeah. What is a transformer, actually? Well, transformers are just two sets of coils beside each other. So the basic idea here is if I have a coil of wire with, say, a 1,000 turns in it, and I put it up beside another coil of wire with 500 turns on it, I have a 50% step down. So I can step down the voltage by half. Is that like a resistor? It's not. This is called induction. Okay. okay, so it's a different electrical concept. Rather than resisting the power, we're causing electricity to be induced between two sets of coils. So because one set of coils is charged, it induces the magnetic flux in the other set of coils to transmit the power across. So you don't generate as much heat off of it, although they're filled with oil because they do get warm. I, I'm not really clear in, in what the term induction means. Do you have a metaphor for me? Wow, this is where the water thing really breaks down. Oh, I guess if you used membranes. So imagine the idea that I have water in a rubber bag pressed against another rubber bag. And when we push a lot of water into that bag, it pushes against the other one. Okay. Right? And one bag's twice the size of the other. So the the small bag pushes and moves the, the bigger bag half as much. Okay. I guess I get that. Right. And so we talk about in AC stepping up and stepping down based on the ratio of the coils. So we're, when you say we're stepping down, are you losing voltage? Yes. You are. You're not losing it. You're stepping it down. Now, I don't understand the difference. Are, are you taking a thousand megawatts and turning it into two, five hundred megawatts? Now, Remember, if you're going to say watts, watts is a combination of volts and amps. Okay. If I cut the voltage in half, I double the amperage, right? I'm not... Now, there's a slight loss in that. Every time we do an induction transformation, we do lose a little bit, but it's... So it's... But go with like the Boyle's ideal law. It's a perfect transformation. So it transforms... uh, I see. So it's the same number of watts, but different volts and amps? You got it. Oh, okay. Now I understand. (laughs) <laughs> right. So don't, and that's the thing is don't cross up the watts. Right. This is about getting the voltage right. Cause I know if I transmit at very high voltages, I lose less electricity over long distance, but I need to step that voltage down to use it. So because watts is a, is a, the multiple of volts and amps, what I'm doing is I'm cutting the volts and I'm raising the amps. Right. Got it. Makes sense? And so there's, Makes and we sense. go through a number of different steps here. We come from the very, very high voltages from the power plant and the long range transmission system. Then we step it down at the substation. Then we step it down at the pole. Got it. And sometimes those transformers on the poles blow sometimes too. I remember I was actually teaching a .NET class in Hartford when .NET first came out and mm-hmm. it was one of those Microsoft tours that the RDs did. And, uh, I, I remember this that, it was right after September 11th, too. And we heard this big explosion. Everybody got evacuated. And, you know, we the, the building shook. And then we went outside and big, thick smoke was pouring out of this, uh, I think it was out of either the sidewalk or it was inside of a building. But it turned out that it was a transformer and it mm-hmm. just blew up. And big, thick, like I say, big, thick oil smoke. Yeah, because normally they, they're submerged, and I mean, for a long time they were submerged in PCBs, right? Which are really, really nasty, dangerous, you know, cancer-causing yeah. oil, but they're very stable oils, right? Yeah. I mean, we use those oils for a reason. They were, they were really good at what they do, and they're used safer oils today, but the bottom line is the, this thing does get warm, and you need to be able to, uh, to transmit the heat off. 
Okay, are we ready for selling power back to the grid? Because well, because now we get into this interesting point about the our grid, and we should talk about North America as a whole. All right, is in a, is a funny thing because you, you now that you know we're going to lose a certain amount of power when we transmit. We don't transmit power too far. We try and minimize the distances. And so we have these interesting selling systems. So, for example, California cannot generate enough electricity to feed itself. It buys electricity from British Columbia, who generates more electricity than we need. But we don't sell the electricity directly to California. We actually sell it to Washington, who can generate enough power for itself. Washington State. Right, Washington State. And then Washington will sell some power to Oregon so that Oregon can sell some power to California. So how do you guys up there in BC generate so much electricity? We got mountains. So hydroelectric. We got lots and lots of hydroelectric. Wow. We got mountains. We got mountains. <laughs> we got a lot of mountains. You got mountains, you got electricity. So oh, yeah. why don't they, are, are they generating a lot of electricity in the Balkans then where there's lots and lots of mountains? Well, you'd, you'd have to ask them. I mean, you also need a lot of water too. Yeah. Right. We got the combination of, of lots of mountains and lots of water. That's true. You have that Pacific humidity there. Yes. I mean, we call it the temperate rainforest. You yeah. know, not far from where I live gets about nine feet of rain a year. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, there's a lot of water and it's an important part of the equation, but it's also important to recognize that these big power plants can't power up and power down very quickly. There's, it takes time to get them up and running and they need to be synchronized. Every power source in a given grid has to put out exactly the same AC wave in exactly in sync with every other AC power generation source. Right. The peaks and have to hit the peaks at the exact, exact same, time. same time. It's very important for it to work like that. It's called synchronization. And so one of the reasons, one of the things is that the US Canada grid is split up. The West Coast and the East Coast are not connected to each other at all. And the center has its own system. Texas has another big system. So there's as well. four grids in the U.S. It's even more than that. There are th- three big ones: West Side, East Side, Texas, and then there are smaller ones in the middle. Okay, but they're and they're synchronized within themselves. But the, the biggest one is the Northeast. You, and you remember that in Ohio, they they made a mistake with some testing that caused that entire Northeast block to shut down. Yes, I do remember. Right, the big cascading shutdown because it's all interconnected. I mean, the interconnections have their advantages. It allows power plants to break down and other people to cover. Right. I mean, there's a good idea mm. there, but it also means they all have to work together. Synchronization is a huge deal, and you get into this problem with there's lots of folks talking about selling power back to the grid. Right. And power companies want you to. Not so much they want you to sell power back to the grid. They have to provision for peak power. This is the big problem they've got. It takes a long time to bring power plants up. It's hard to shut them down. So the difference between peak power consumption, you know, two o'clock in the afternoon on a summer's day and minimum power consumption, three in the morning is almost a hundred percent, right? It's literally double the power. Yeah. But because you can't power up and power down power plants fast, they provision for peak all the time. Right. So there's a lot of wasted power. They generate a lot more power. They burn a lot more coal. They pu- they flow a lot more water than they need to. It's just not that fast. They can't adjust quickly. And so, you know, one of the goals as we start talking about modern power systems is how do we decrease the difference between peak and minimum power? But power companies struggling to pro- deliver peak power start encouraging people to generate their own power locally, right? Solar cells, windmills, things like that to reduce their power consumption at peak. And one of the incentives they provided is, hey, if you generate more power than you need, we'll buy it from you. Now, what's really happening here? Because I remember having this conversation with you. If you go to tinyurl.com slash selling back to grid, um, you know, I've, I've got this website here where, you know, they talk about how to make money with your windmill selling power back right. to the grid. So, but and, and well, tell you take it from here because you had an, a very interesting comment about all this stuff. Well, you see, for you to be selling power back to the grid means that you are now generating enough power to power everything you need, which that's what helps the power company out. You're taking pressure off their grid at peak times. But the net amount of power you have to sell, remember, this is not water. Right. You're not right. just pouring it into a bucket. Right. For you to put AC onto the grid, you have to synchronize it with the grid. So if you don't own that set of synchronization hardware, you're not really putting power back into the grid. And not and only you, that, but you have to provide serious power to get it on the grid. Do you not? Well, to do synchronization, 
consumes a bunch of power. It's not easy to synchronize. It costs electricity. So if you've just got a little bit to sell back, it's just not going to end up being anything. Right. So they're willing to pay you for it because of the big reward, which is that you took yourself off their load. Right. But it's only when you get into, I've got 100, 200, 300 kilowatts to sell, that it makes sense to put in the synchronization gear and to deal with all of that. Yeah, you every once in a while you hear, my meter runs backwards. Right. And Which is fine, right? Yeah. It, it, that doesn't mean any somebody else used your power. It just meant the power company is willing to pay you. Right. It's two different things. So when you hear somebody say, I put a windmill in my yard and I'm selling power back to the grid, they might be getting money for generating their own power. Right. But they're not actually putting electricity into the grid. Not at this point. I mean, we've got a whole other show we can do about smart grids to make that more of a reality. Okay. But we're not there yet because right now the infrastructure we've got dependent on the synchronous grid, works best with a handful of very large power plants. All right. Okay? But there are other solutions coming along. So now we get into this really, you know, DC's making a comeback. It's more popular in Europe, but when you start tackling the problem of synchronized grids, so you look at a place like Denmark with thousands and thousands of windmills, and every one of those things needs to be synchronized, it becomes a huge problem. And much less trying to synchronize, they want to sell power to Sweden or support Sweden's power system. Yeah. So one of the things they're starting to do is these things called high voltage direct current transmission. So DC, not AC. So they're not synchronized. And so does DC travel better? Only when you get the voltage really high and you can protect the wires properly. And typically they're bipole systems. So they cost more to put in because you need two wires. Oh. The other thing that's starting to come online now is superconductive wire. Ooh. So we've had advances in superconductors to the point now where you can make superconductors with liquid nitrogen, which makes it much more economical to make a superconductor work. And I'll, we can do a whole show on superconductors some other time because we're, you know, we're getting long here. We are. But the big thing with superconductors is no more electrical loss. Yeah. But the neat thing about a DC system is it makes it easy for AC sources to pump it in. Now, you have to rectify the power into DC, which creates a loss. Right. But it's as complex as synchronization. So, while the Europeans have started to do DC, recently, just the past couple of years, there's been this idea in the U.S. called the Tres Amigas Superstation. It would be positioned in New Mexico, but the goal was to interconnect the West Coast with the Texas system with the East Coast. Mm. Now, remember I was talking about 500 kilovolt wires? Yeah. They're talking about uh, 5,000 kilovolt wires. Oh, geez. Like a whole other level, much higher power, high temperature superconductive wires, but... They're, the big idea here is, hey, let's integrate grids so that they're more stable because we have stability problems. Mm -hmm. But let's make it easier for a place like New Mexico that has lots and lots of solar power and nobody need and very few people to consume it to be able to distribute that power to the East Coast where or the West Coast where it's needed. And uh, a place like like Iowa with lots and lots of wind power, but again, not a lot of people to consume it to be easily able to distribute it to the coast. It's an interesting idea, mm. but it sticks with this viewpoint of centralized power that let's just concentrate in individual areas. And there's another conflicting philosophy to this, which is the smart grid idea. Let's, let's get more peer to peer. You know, this mm. is why I think I says geeks are really into this. Right. We understand peer to peer. We've spent time in the internet, right? We know what this is about. Most of the rest of the world is completely confused by it. Right. But when you realize that, the whole reason we have centralized power is because it started out with coal power plants, right? We And we had a few skilled people that could build these big plants and distribute them to the few places they needed to. And then gradually, over time, it evolved into household power that was everywhere. Yeah. Now there's a movement coming along that says we should be doing power the same way. We should make it widely distributed. So the Tres Amigas Superstation has not been built. It's still in the planning status. It was supposed to start last year. But, you know, there's a lot of argument over whether do we further improve centralization or do we go to broader distribution well and when we do the nuclear show the nuclear power show we're going to talk about having smaller nuclear power plants uh, but more of them well that's one idea and one approach same with wind same with solar there's so many right. different things we can do here when we get into distributed networks but let's save that for another show because i think that's all we can that's, say for now that's about it 
Richard, thank you so much. I always learn, uh, you know, for people who don't understand what it's like to just go have a drink with Richard, this is pretty much it. <laughs> <laughs> you'll, you'll learn something and you'll walk away going, damn, that's awesome. It's very exciting times, isn't it? Yes, it is. And uh, we talked about an awful lot today. I hope we got it right. If you're concerned about anything we've said, you want to correct us in any way, please don't hesitate. Write a comment right. on the show at .netrocks.com. We want to spread good information and to understand things better because there's a lot more to talk about from here. I think we set some foundations for a year of great geek outs around electricity. Absolutely. Can't wait for more coming up on .NET Rocks, and we'll see you next time. Hey, thanks for listening. And remember... Pluralsight.com is where you can get 200 minutes of free video training by guests on .NET Rocks and other experts in the field. Pluralsight.com. .NET Rocks is recorded and produced by Plop Productions, providing professional audio, audio mastering, video, post-production, and podcasting services. Online at www.pwop.com. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter and offering custom on-site classes in Microsoft development technology with expert developers. Online at www.franklins.net. For more .NET Rocks episodes and to subscribe to the podcast feeds, go to our website at www.dotnetrocks.com. Got a transmitter band by the FCC. Yes, I'm a 